0: The first reading is taken from Philippians, chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess. That Jesus Christ is to, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our second reading is taken from Luke chapter four and verses sixteen to twenty-one. He, Jesus, went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found a place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing.
1: Now, my family moved to Horsham in uh, 1949 when I was ten years old uh, doesn't take too much maths. And <clears throat> we lived in, in Devon for a, a large part of the war, a beautiful part of the, of the country. And uh, during the 1950s, my parents and my family, we went back to Devon for holidays sometimes while we still had friends down there. And there was one who, man who wasn't a friend, you might say, but an acquaintance that my, my parents knew who lived with his sister in a nearby village. And he was a retired headmaster from a big school in Surrey. And uh, I think uh, it's right, I'm right in saying once a teacher, always a teacher. Is that right, Harold? Yes. Um, because whenever we met, he would talk to me as a teacher. And he taught me lots of things about mental arithmetic and um, how to do things with figures, which uh, has, has proved quite useful. And he taught me a proverb. Now, it's a proverb which um, <coughs> I forgotten for decades probably but thought about it when I was thinking about what I was going to say today now this is how it goes and you'll need to listen fairly carefully he who uh, you might know it of course so forgive me if I'm repeating something you know he who knows not and knows not that he knows not he is a fool, shun him he who knows not but knows that he knows not, he is simple teach him he who knows, but knows not that he knows, he is asleep, awaken him. <laughs> but he who knows, and knows that he knows, he is a leader, follow him. Now I hope you were paying attention, because I might test you on it later. <laughs> of course, it's also well known that um, for those people who um, think they know everything, it can be very irritating especially for those of us who do. Um, Anyway, going back to the proverb, um, let's fit a few people into that proverb. For those of us of a certain age, I think Winston Churchill would come to mind. He came in as Prime Minister of this country when we were at a very low ebb, and he told our parents, and many of you grandparents, all the things that would need to be done to maintain the freedom of this country and to keep the enemy out. He knew what would be involved, and we accepted that he knew, our parents did, and they willingly followed him as our prime minister, despite all the difficulties that he was telling us about. Closer to home, our pastor Tim, and it's so good to see Tim with us today, and I'm sure most of you are thinking, wish he were up here. Um, he, he knows more about the scriptures than, than pro- any one of us here, with one or two notable exceptions. When he first came to, to our church, I invited him to come and speak at Rotary, and he started his talk by assuring our members that he knew more about sin than anyone. Uh, it caused a bit of mirth there, and I think one or two members rather doubted that he was correct, in fact. Um, but, uh, It was good to have Tim there. Now Tim knows that he has been called by God and he knows that God has called him to be a minister and we thank God for that and we gladly accept him as our leader. But Tim, I think, would be the first to to say that he would not try to do, for example, Carol's job um, as church treasurer here or in her professional life. And I think the same for Andy Leach. He would not want perhaps to do the church secretary's job And you certainly wouldn't want his job as a medical practitioner. So there are limits to the proverb. And Jesus came across such limits when he was dealing with the scribes and Pharisees. Their knowledge of the scriptures was immense. To be a Pharisee, you had to be able to quote the Torah, you had to be able to quote the law from the first five books of the Bible. Um, And uh, they would discuss them endlessly, So they were very clever people, and Jesus knew that they were very clever and that they had all this knowledge. And this is what Jesus said about um, the, the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. That means they knew the law. They sit in Moses' seat. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. That's a pretty awful indictment, isn't it? The first time, probably where that, that quotation comes from. They do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to help them. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels of their prayer shawls long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogue. They love to be greeted in the marketplace and to have men call them rabbi. So Jesus knew that the uh, Pharisees were at the bottom of the heap, whereas they thought they were at the top. They thought they knew and they knew that they knew. But in fact, Jesus was saying, You don't know anything because you have omitted one major thing. It's a very small verse in in the book of Micah that I'm sure most of you could quote. Micah 6, verse 8. What does the Lord require of you but to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Now, the Pharisees, for all their knowledge, that's just the three things they omitted. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So they went straight from the top of of that proverb down to the bottom They knew not, and they didn't even realize that they knew not. Now, let's take one Pharisee in particular, Saul of Tarsus. Uh, Saul, possibly his family named him after the great king Saul, who who had been a good king for 40 years, or say, 35 years. He was a good king until he disobeyed God, and everything went downhill. And you remember the story of Saul and and, uh, how David succeeded him. And in um, Acts chapter 13, there's a little verse that says, Saul, known also as Paul. Now, he must have renamed himself, and I'm sure a lot of you know that that Paulus in Latin means small. So he'd gone from being the great Saul down to being Paul, which means small, and he did that to himself. And this is what he says about himself. Uh, In the letter to the Galatians, which is probably the first letter that he wrote to the new churches... This is what he said in chapter 1. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. So he thought he was the tops. He thought he knew and he knew that he knew. And then later on, In one of his later letters, and this is in Philippians, chapter 3, he says this. If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and in regard to law, a Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, and as for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ. So Paul, Saul, as when he was Saul, he thought he was top of the heap. He knew that he knew, and then he realized, when Jesus touched him, that in fact he knew nothing. He was only at the top of the heap when he accepted that Jesus was his leader. And Paul recognized that. Um, now, can you put up the Philippians <laughs> section again? That's it. Um, yes. Can you go to the the last bit? That's it. Thank you. Thank you. Now remember this. Jessica read this to us earlier. This is perhaps the the first Christian creed that ever existed. Now I think I'm right in saying, I always have to be careful when I've got ministers in here, I think I'm right in saying that scholars are divided as to whether Paul actually composed this or whether something was in circulation already and he quoted it again in his letter. Whatever it is, it's the first Christian creed that we have. There there is the Creed of Nicaea, which is jolly difficult to understand. And you may remember that Howard tried to explain it to us in terms of H2O a few weeks ago. Um, H2O being in three different forms of uh, ice, water, and steam. And thank you, Howard, for that, but it's still jolly difficult to understand the Trinity. (laughs) Um, But here, it's easy to understand. This is all about Jesus, the first Christian creed. it's all, I say, about Jesus and perfectly easy to understand. So how would Jesus himself fit into our proverb? Well, Jesus would start at the bottom, not because Jesus was a fool, not suggesting that at all, but because he was a baby. And all babies start at the bottom. They don't even know they exist. They depend for everything upon their mums. So they know not, and they know not that they know not. Following the visit of the wise men, his little family was suddenly forced to flee down into Egypt. Now, have you ever thought of the wonderful provision that God made for his son? while he knew not and knew not that he knew not. God made this wonderful provision for his his son. The wise men bought gifts. We assume there were three, but there might have been any number. Gold for a king, frankincense because of his um, priestly aspect, and uh, Myrrh recognising his future death. Three things with their prophetic value, but at the same time, they must have had a pretty amazing monetary value as well, which um, the family must have needed, Joseph must have needed, because suddenly he had to leave home, get transport, and go down into Egypt. Now, it must have been three to 400 miles, at least a three-week journey for which he needed animals, a cart, we don't know, it doesn't say. He needed accommodation on the way down. When he got there, he needed a home and needed to set up in business. And God, in this wonderful way, had provided for that um, by the gifts of the wise men. Now, when did Jesus move into the second category, which I'm sure you all remember is he who knows not, but knows that he knows not? Second category. Now, this is when toddlers move into the stage of saying why, how, when. They want to make sense of the environment around them. And I can imagine Jesus saying to to Mary, why was I born in a stable? Tell me again about the shepherds when they came and when they they told us that, that wonderful story. What did they say? And those wise men, when they came, why did they bring those gifts? And, Daddy, why, why did Herod hate us so? Why did we have to leave home and come down here? Now, all these sort of questions Jesus must have been turning over in his mind. And we don't know when he went into the third category. And the third category, of course, was he who knows but knows not that he knows. Now, in his human brain, Jesus had the whole knowledge of the universe. And gradually, he must have realized that everything that was around him, he had created. He was part of the Trinity that had created all these wonderful things around him. And when he looked up into the heavens, he created that. Now, what a, an incredible thought for a young man. These things coming, they're already in his brain, and he had to somehow realize that this is who he was. You don't think about this very often, but uh, I was thinking about this when, when I was preparing how on earth does does the human brain cope with these thoughts (coughs) that he himself had created all these things around him? Now, we don't know when Jesus moved into the top category, and that, as you remember, is he who knows and knows that he knows. When did he move into that category? We don't know. But what we do know is that by the time he was 12, his family had moved back up north into Nazareth, and uh, they one year took the annual pilgrimage into Jerusalem and they have been through all the ceremonies in the temple, but on the way back to their home they suddenly couldn't find Jesus. You remember the story and the panic that the parents must have felt. They couldn't find him. He wasn't with friends, he wasn't with the rest of the family. Where was he? And They rushed back into Jerusalem and eventually found him in the temple and if uh, Joseph and Mary were like any other parents. They'd be, where have you been? What have you been doing? Why did you do this? And Jesus' answer was, "Um, surely you know, I must be about my father's business. So at that point, he must have just been in the top category. But it took Jesus another 18 years to prepare himself for his ministry. 18 years of working as a carpenter. So it's no wonder that um, the people of Nazareth and the people around him in Galilee said, oh, he's just the carpenter's son. Just the carpenter's son, because he'd been doing that for another 18 years. And uh, he... uh, Where have I got to? Oh, yes. Another 18 years. But during that time, he was um, able to be baptised by John the Baptist, and then he went into the de- the desert to be tempted by the devil, presumably just to prove to himself that uh, he was able to stand up to the devil and would do in later in life. And a little later, he was able to say to Nicodemus when they met together, for God so loved the world that he sent me that whoever believes in me shall have eternal life. So by that time, he was well into the top category. He knew why he had come. And uh, towards the end of his life, he said to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Now that would be a neat and convenient place to stop. And I expect a lot of you are saying, thank goodness, stop. (laughs) But, I can't stop there, because if you're like me, when you study the scriptures, when you prepare for things like house group or or like a meeting like this, there are always questions. And one of the principal questions is why? Why things happen? Why is there so much fighting in the world? Why is there so much poverty? Why is there so much disease? and unhappiness. Why do these things happen? Why, God? When's it going to stop? And more fundamental than that, um, when we sang the first hymn, we were talking about creation that that God had made. And that, as I said, uh, came over here in the 1950s. Now, since the 1950s until now, our knowledge of the universe has increased immensely, immensely. Immensely. And uh, the scientists tell us that there are something like 180 billion galaxies out there. They're just numbers that our brains, I mine anyway, can't take in. 180 billion galaxies. And we're just one of them, floating around in space. And our galaxy is over 100,000 light years across. And our solar system is something like 22,000 light years from the center and we're all going around this vast Milky Way galaxy. And uh, our little rock goes around the sun in a year. But for some reason, and you say, why on earth does God choose to come here to this little rock when you consider those vast numbers And even more, why does he think of me? Why does he think of you when there are six, seven billion people on this little rock? Now, these are questions that I think, why? And then there's another one that's perhaps even more fundamental. We all believe and sing that God created the heaven and the earth. And we're absolutely sure and happy about that. Then we read in the book of Revelations that one day... God will banish the devil. So in my mind, I think, well, why does God wait? Why didn't he banish the devil at the beginning of time instead of waiting to the end of time? Now, perhaps Tim can answer these questions, but... uh, (laughs) (laughs) Because if God had banished the devil at the beginning of time, it seems an obvious thing to do, because then there would have been no need for a plan of salvation. There would have been no need for Jesus to come and suffer that agonizing death. Certainly, he could have come, and we'd have welcomed him. And the people who were living here at that time would have welcomed Jesus here as their friend. Didn't need to come and suffer. Why, God? Why? Why did, did it happen that way? Um, when I was thinking through these things, of course, I came back to Job. I'd already intended to um, talk about Job anyway. That's why last week um, it was a bit perturbing when when our minister started talking about him as well. But he was relating to Job in the context of why prayers are seemingly not answered sometimes. Not in the rather, I don't know what my questions are, but uh, they're more difficult to answer than perhaps than that one, or that's difficult enough. But I could imagine God saying, where were you when I laid the foundations of the universe, which is much bigger than the writer of Job knew about? Where were you when I decided how time and eternity should work out in this little rock of ours? Who are you to question what I'm doing? I didn't really answer it, but it puts it in perspective. Now, in our house group, Robin and Errol very kindly put out a store of books for us to look at, a little library that they produce um, every fortnight, and they put them on the table, and uh, sometimes we take them and we read them, and, and there's some lovely books there. And I've been reading one recently by Canon Andrew White. Now, amongst other things, he is the vicar of Baghdad, which is one of the most dangerous places to live. So he has much more reason than I have to ask those sorts of questions. And he does. He wonders why. His church is 4,000 strong, but there's tremendous suffering. And he warns anyone that becomes a Christian, that comes into his church, that they're doing the most dangerous thing they could do, but still they come. And he's written a book called Faith Under Fire. And he quotes in there that uh, back in 2010... 144 members of his church were killed when a bomb exploded within the church. The following year, 93 members died, 11 of whom were a family of 13 who'd come into the church. And uh, he warned them, as he did always, and yet within two weeks, all of them were dead. They'd just been killed by their enemies. Now you can understand why he wonders why God allows this to happen, but this is a quote from his book. He says, thus, in the midst of tragedy, when we have lost everything, and Jesus is all we have left, we know he is all we need. And that is real faith. Now let's move on to another Pharisee. Paul. We did talk about him earlier. Paul had doubts. He became, after he had become a Christian, he had doubts. He was ridiculed, he was beaten, he was imprisoned, and he knew that eventually he would be giving his life for his faith. And towards the end of his life, when he was in prison, he wrote to his prodigy, Timothy. This is in 2 Timothy chapter 1. And he, spoke, he wrote, despite all that's happened... I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Now that day came for Paul a long time ago. It has come for many of, our, uh, of the Christians in Baghdad and for many of the Christians in the persecuted church throughout the world. And one day it will come for us. It's the day when we shall see Jesus face to face And then we shall know these answers, or answers to these questions, if we still want to. We may not want to by then, but we shall know the answers to these questions then. And I guess we have to wait until then. And so I'm going to ask us now to to sing together the lovely song that includes those words. It's Songs of Fellowship, number 220. I know not why God's wondrous grace has been made known to me. and. Every verse picks up something that's in Paul's writings or in the Gospels, and it says, I don't know about this, I don't know why, but I do know that I have committed what I have committed unto him against that day is okay, I should be okay.